0: Well, let me open our class time with a word of prayer, and I'm going to pray for Tim and Cindy and their ministry, and then we will open the Word of God and, and get started with our teaching time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessings you've given us to be a part of the body of Christ. Lord, we would be so lost and isolated if we didn't have the family of God that you've provided for us. And so we thank you for the gift that you've given us. And Lord, even as we have heard this morning of Tim and Cindy meeting with only six total people present, Lord, what a privilege we have of our Sunday school class and our church to be surrounded by so many believers. And so, Lord, help us not take it for granted and help us to continue to be encouraged and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds when we gather together. And I thank you, Lord, for the update that Tim was able to give. I thank you for the ministry blessings that you've given to he and Cindy who have stepped out on faith and and left security to serve you. And I thank you, Lord, for the testimonies that they have over these years of your faithfulness. And I pray you'll continue to bless their ministry. I pray that their time here in town with their family would be of great encouragement to them and that they would be able to enjoy the time they spend with their children and grandchildren. And I just pray, Lord, that as they return home, that this trip will encourage and energize them to continue being faithful and proclaiming the gospel in Connecticut. Lord, we pray that our gifts would continue to minister to them and that you would provide for their needs so that the ministry can continue. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I should have mentioned that they also have a son, and I'm forgetting his name, Mitch, who is a pastor locally as well. So they have their daughter, Stephanie, who is here, but they have a son who's in ministry as well. So they are two for the price of one when they come to town to be able to see their Both of their children here locally. So if you will open your Bibles, not surprisingly, to the book of Hebrews. And I was talking to Pastor Steve this morning. We get together on Sunday before church and pray. And I'm burdened with the fact that I think everybody is ready for me to be done with Hebrews. But I'm not done yet. So we are going to continue on. We are in Hebrews chapter 12. And if you can recall it's been a few weeks since I taught. I had the opportunities to preach a couple of Sundays and then I was out of town. But we are in the midst of looking at Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 through 17. And when I originally introduced this message, it's a five-part outline of the text. And so to get us back on pace and get us back on Page, so I can complete this section this morning, I'm going to give a, a brief overview of where we've been. A- and I'm going to start just by reminding you where we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we've come out of a, a lot of theology and great truths throughout the first portion of the book, a particularly central focus from chapters. 5 through 10 on Jesus' unique role and his sufficient role as our great high priest. And chapter 11 is a, a great litany of Old Testament saints who had faith, and the encouragement to us is to emulate their faith. There are our great cloud of witnesses, according to the beginning of chapter 12. And then chapter 12 starts focusing on living out all of these truths. In light of the reality of everything that's been taught, how should we as believers live? And so as we are in this context, we're, being, we're dealing with different exhortations, different encouragements given to the body of Christ that apply to our daily lives and should impact how we live. And that's exactly what we find in verses 14 through 17. And verse 13 talks about making straight paths. There's an aspect of which what we're learning about is how do we walk in the way that God desires for us. How do we walk on straight paths? How do we live life as a congregation and as individuals that pleases God? And so we have some specific instructions in verses 14 through 17 that give us guidance on what we should be doing to honor the Lord with our lives. And so I'm going to read these verses again. And then I'm going to briefly summarize what we've already taught and get into our final point this morning. So beginning at verse 14, we see this. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, this small section, as I indicated, I believe is teaching us how to walk, so to speak, in the straight and narrow. Verse 13 talks about making straight paths for your feet. It's talking about walking in obedience, walking in holiness. And I think this is verses that are explanatory of how you accomplish that. And so when I broke this down originally, I just said this was five keys to our church family walking the straight and narrow. And I'm going to briefly summarize those. Most of them are online. There's two messages that are waiting for me to make some uh, changes. Our brother faithfully records them and there's a an issue that I need to address on the tape, and I'm just very busy, and I haven't had a chance to do it. But the point is, you can go back and listen to these teachings at some point and get more details, but for time's sake, I have to go very quickly. But the first point was very simple, strive to live as peacemakers. The the admonition of verse 14, pursue peace with all men, is to be expected, given that the Bible from beginning to end is talking about peace. How do we have peace with God? course, we only have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and after God takes us from being His enemies to being His children, He expects and commands us to pursue peace, both amongst ourselves and with everyone else. Christians should not be known as the community rabble-rousers. We shouldn't be the ones with the torches and pitchforks. We should be known as people of peace. The second key to walking the straight and narrow was pursue genuine holiness, This word pursue, pursue peace with all men, but it's also to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And that sanctification, many translations translate it holiness. That's accurate. It's the same idea. Basically, the writer's telling us we're supposed to pursue being like Jesus Christ. We're supposed to pursue it, run after it, seek after it in a very diligent way. At its core, holiness is doing God's will in your life, meaning being like Christ, who always did the Father's will. And the idea is, as has been throughout the case of the book of Hebrews, there have been warnings throughout the book about the dangers of apostasy, about the fact that there, the writer knew that even though he was dealing with believers, there were unbelievers in the midst, some in danger of becoming an apostate, and At the end, what he's talking about and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, he was making it clear pretenders will not see the kingdom of heaven. If you've not truly been born again, if you've not truly been born again, you cannot see the Lord. If you have no sanctification at all, no holiness, the idea is don't fool yourself. You're not a believer. And the only way, unless you come to Christ, that you'll see the Lord is in an awful judgment. The third point was to seek to save our church family. And that comes beginning with a key phrase at verse 15. It says, see to it. And as I mentioned when I originally introduced this, see to it actually applies to three different areas. The third of which is going to be our new point today. But this idea of see to it carry something more than just watching, and it's the idea of oversight. And the idea being conveyed is that even though the pastors, of course, have oversight for the church, we are the under-shepherds of Christ, that we have oversight and responsibility for your souls, there's a sense, according to the Scriptures, where every single one of us, as members of the body of Christ, have a responsibility to exercise oversight over one another. We're supposed to be caring for one another enough to look out for these things. So when I say seek to save our church family, this is a corporate responsibility. It goes beyond just individual living. It's what we are to do as the body of Christ. And we all have a role to play in caring for our brothers and sisters here at Lakeside. And this first aspect of what C2 it applies to is that no one comes short of the grace of God And the idea, as I elaborated before, is basically is this. It's possible for people to be in church, to be around Christians, to go through all the motions, and be unbelievers. And to be lost. And we're supposed to be on the lookout to make sure that doesn't happen. Or at the very least, to the extent that we see it, we're supposed to intercede. The picture of the judgment is always a terrifying thing to think about. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord... We'll enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of people that are doing churchy things that don't know Christ. And so part of our responsibility is to make sure that we're on the lookout for any that may be falling through the cracks at Lakeside. And it's not just the responsibility of the pastors. It's responsibility of all of us. The fourth point, by way of review, was this. Eliminate poison before it spreads. And the second Phraseology governed by see to it, that oversight role, is that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And this idea of the root of bitterness springing up, the springing up is something that occurs relatively quickly. It pops up, you're going along, and all of a sudden this is present in the church. And the specific phraseology comes from an idea that Moses set forth in Deuteronomy 29, and the idea that Moses warned in Deuteronomy 29:19 was that the people should be on the alert because there would be some amongst the family of Israel that would turn away to other gods and lead other people astray, and they were referred to in Deuteronomy as poisonous fruit. And so, this root of bitterness is really the idea of there could be some people in our midst that can pop up, if we're not careful, that aren't content just to quietly live disobedient lives, they'll try and turn other people away. That's why it says, by it many be defiled. If unchecked, unbelief in the midst of the church can lead other people away from the gospel. So we're supposed to be on the lookout to make sure that in our midst, as much as we know how, if we see warning signs, we reach out to people, we address them. We deal with them. So that is a far too quick overview. But I feel like I needed to do it. And the fourth point connects to the fifth point. And that's what we're going to see today. It's the last phrase governed by c to it So our five keys. Strive to live as peacemakers. Pursue genuine holiness. Seek to save our church family. Eliminate poison before it spreads. And finally, be on the alert for spiritual frauds be on the alert for spiritual frauds. And this is going to take some development by me this morning, so bear with me. I'm very concerned as I've gone through my notes and I've gone through my studies that I articulate this in a way that's understandable. And even in my own thinking through it, I was going off on rabbit trail. So I hope that I don't lead you astray. Bear with me. I'm eventually going to make a point. And if you don't get it, come up to me later and I'll try and explain it one-on-one. So I hope I don't make it too confusing. But we've got to go back to verse 15 with the words, see to it. And then come to verses 16 and 17. So what, if we were reading it as the clause goes, we'd say, see to it. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, when I first read through this text, and I don't want to project my shortcomings onto you, but when I first read this text, it confused me a little bit. It didn't jump out at me that this text deals with what I'm talking about of spiritual frauds. It didn't jump out at me that way. That's my phraseology, by the way, spiritual frauds. But as I studied through the text, it's one of those times where a light bulb went off and I think I understand the gist of what the author is trying to communicate. But as we break this down, you'll see, I hope, why I had a little bit of confusion. When you start at the beginning of it, you say, See to it that there be no immoral or godless person. So if this was all that was there, it'd be a fairly straightforward text. The word translated immoral in English is the normal word that would deal with fornication. It would be a type of sexual immorality. It would seem, based on this, that the first thing that we're supposed to see to it is that there not be immoral people, sexually immoral people in our midst. We should be on the alert for that. It would certainly apply to anyone having any type of sexual relations outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage. Marriage. And the second prohibition that refers to godless, so it says immoral or godless, means what you think it means. It's somebody who chooses the world and sin over God and holiness. Someone who despises and shows contempt for God and the things of God, which really would be the state of all unbelievers, but is particularly damaging if such character manifests itself in the church. So when you look at this at first glance, it seems to be talking about sexual immorality and a lack of faith in God. And you put it together and uh, simply is saying in the church, make sure that you find the immoral people and you find the godless people and you deal with them. But the writer doesn't leave it there. He says, see to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. And that adds a new dynamic to the overarching command because the writer is explaining what he means by, I believe, immoral or godless. And he's putting his definition of immoral or godless in the context of the life of a man named Esau. So the writer isn't using those words in a vacuum. He's tying them to a particular historical person who would be familiar to his Jewish audience as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer refers back to Old Testament characters whose lives would be common knowledge amongst his hearers. In fact, verse 17, if you look at the beginning of it, it says, For you know, such that he expected, he didn't need to explain all of this, that they, from their upbringing and their background, knew who Esau was. So when we look at the simple terms of the verse... I believe, immoral or godless is being qualified by like Esau. However Esau was, that's what's being warned against. And then he summarizes brief terms and what we would know from looking to Hebrews, Esau sold a birthright for a single meal and then apparently he regretted it. But I think from the context, it's clear that there's a little more behind it that helps us to understand the words immoral or godless a little bit better. So I want to go a little bit back to the background of Esau, because I don't assume that all of us know Esau like the original hearers did. And I want to make certain that we get the correct application of this see-to-it command to the church, all of us, And so I'm going to provide a little bit of a background, but because of time constraints, I'm just going to have to summarize this. You're going to have to trust me, but trust and verify, as they say. Most of what I'm talking about you can find in the book of Genesis, generally chapters 25 through 28. So if you want a good account of the life of Esau, go to Genesis chapter 25 to 28. In fact, I would encourage you to do it. But I am going to summarize things briefly in a way that I pray will help make this significant and relevant to us. Esau was born into a great family. He started out in a great position. His grandfather was Abraham. If you're in Judaism, Abraham is the father. Even in us, we understand the centrality of Abraham to our faith, but for a Jewish person, at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, Abraham was the greatest. So, from common knowledge, Esau had a great family pedigree. His dad was Isaac. Even though Abraham and Isaac were men who had sin, they were also men who had God's favor. Throughout the book of Genesis, from time to time, what you see in reference to God, God's defined this way, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I think many of us know this, but certainly there were a lot of things that pastors assumed that we knew when I was first a believer that I didn't understand. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob introduces another person to the mix because Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. Many of us know this. I understand this. Esau came out first, so he was the older. Jacob was the younger. And so from birth, Esau had the privilege of being born into a family with whom God made a covenant. His father and grandfather had direct interaction with God, direct revelations from God, and God made specific promises to both Esau's father and grandfather, that they would be blessed. So he started out with a great pedigree. Perfect background. Great privileges. As I mentioned, the relevant portion of his life that come into play is not the only places he's mentioned in the Old Testament. Genesis 25 to 28 have the narrative accounts. But being born first carried great privileges for Esau. In the culture and in the time, it was a blessing to be the first son. You had special rights. From a purely monetary perspective, you'd make a lot more money if you're the first son than any other. He would have a great inheritance, greater inheritance. He would have priority in family relationship. And it's interesting, and it's one of the things that early on spoke to me of the truthfulness of the Bible. The Bible doesn't cover up Man sins, even though Esau was born into a great environment with great promises and he was the first son, his parents didn't respond to the twins very well, apparently. We don't know the full dynamic, but we know the parents played favorites, which is never good. Isaac, the father, loved Esau. Jacob was a mama's boy, literally. And they led different lives. I think from our perspective, we would look at Esau as the manly man. He'd have a shotgun in the back of his pickup truck, and he's going out and hunting game, and he's a man, a man's man. And Jacob was probably somewhere in the kitchen playing with spices or something like that. You know, we we would not think of him in the same category. But the fact remains that they were brothers. Their parents had favorites, which should not have been the case. But the substance of Hebrews 12 intersects with Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 to 34. And I'm going to read that brief account. Because it's the historical backdrop for the specific reference in Hebrews. Genesis 25, starting at 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die, so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. From a simple, pragmatic standpoint, it's probably the worst business deal in history. (laughs) Abraham was a very wealthy man. And Isaac was a very wealthy man. And Esau would have had an entitlement to many things. And he sold it for some stew and some bread. That's what Hebrews is talking about. It says he sold his own birthright for a single meal. But it appears that there was something far greater going on. It wasn't just a material aspect that was involved. There's evidence of a spiritual component to all of this. Esau was evidencing a heart that didn't care about the Lord. In verse 17 of Hebrews, again coming back to here, we read of an offshoot. It's a separate historical event, but it's connected, which is an indication showing the heart issue involved. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Again, this is a separate point in Esau's life. It's found in Genesis chapter 27. But basically, there were spiritual blessings that were given to Isaac from the Lord. Genesis twenty six twenty four records this encounter between God and Isaac. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So Isaac was given a specific promise by God that he would inherit great blessings. And those aren't just material. They were spiritual components. And Genesis 27 deals... With Isaac coming to the end of his life. He's about to die. And he apparently wanted to pass on those blessings to his son Esau. Now, I'm really going to summarize this. I think most of us are familiar with the story. Again, if you're not, read Genesis 27. But what you see is a display of family scheming and wickedness that would make a pretty good movie. Because the dad wants to bless his oldest son. In spite of the fact that Esau had sold his birthright, it looked like Isaac was still trying to give him a blessing. So Isaac said, you know, you go and you prepare me a meal and then I'll bless you. Jacob's mother heard about it and she put in her deceptive schemes and dishonesty and convinced Jacob to lie to his father. And we understand from the biblical account, even though it took some doing, they fooled Isaac. Isaac gave the blessing to the younger son, Jacob. And when Esau figured out he had been tricked, he was despondent. That's what verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about. In Genesis 27, you read this at verses 34 to 35, and then at verse 38, but it says, When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he, meaning Isaac, and he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And then verse 38, Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. So we have these two historical events that combine to give a snapshot of the life of this man Esau. He first had so little regard For things that he traded away his status as a firstborn son, his birthright. He despised it for a meal. And then secondly, through deceptions, but it's also part of God's sovereignty. He didn't get another blessing. So when verse 17 says... For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, this is what it's talking about, that historical account. He was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now I think what we have to do is understand that this takes something that was explicit in the text, but also adds something that's implicit. It seems that at the end of his father's life, Esau wanted back what he gave away. And he thought he was going to get it perhaps. The biblical account doesn't provide all of the details of all of the things that would be contained in the blessing of Isaac, but it seems that God allowed events to unfold that bound Esau to his earlier choices. It seems clear from the scriptures, even though we don't have all of the elaboration of it, that Esau didn't have a sincere desire to turn to God in all of this. There's no evidence from any of this that he truly was seeking after God with sorrow and repentance and wanting to turn away from his sin. He was just upset because he got tricked and robbed. Esau didn't pursue God and it seems he wanted the blessings without the obedience. It seems he wanted the blessings without the commitment of the heart. And God didn't let this happen. And even the personal anguish and the tears of Esau couldn't undo his sinful choices that continued to manifest a sinful heart. Now before I tie all this together, which I hope I can do, I want to make a point that I don't think I can get away from looking at this. I think it's interesting. It said, he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. In no way is this teaching that God... Turned his back on things. The Bible makes it clear we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and if we cry out with genuine hearts of faith and repentance, God can hear us. What's evident, though, is that Esau didn't actually have a heart that truly repented, even though he had regret and sorrow. It's possible that tears don't equal repentance. It's possible that genuine sorrow doesn't equal repentance. If a heart does not turn to God, then all of the human emotion of sorrow is pointless. I think all of us, including me, are encouraged when we see people that seem to be broken. But we need to make sure that the brokenness is of the right variety, because even unbelievers can be sad. I always think it's interesting, and I've thought about it many times, and obviously because I'm about to read the text, I thought about it again as I was preparing this. But Matthew 27 mentions what happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus. Verse 3 through 5. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what's that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And if we had nothing but that, we'd say, hmm. Was he turning? Was he truly repenting? But it says, and he went away and hanged himself. I think what Judas experienced and what Esau had experienced generations before, described accurately by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, salvation, But the sorrow of the world produces death. Esau, I believe, felt genuine remorse. I don't doubt those tears were sincere. He really was sad that he wasn't getting what he wanted. But he wasn't sad because he knew he had offended a holy God by his life. He wasn't sad because he had turned his back on the spiritual blessings that could have been his. He was sad because of what he wouldn't get. If we read further in the biblical account, even though he never got to carry it out, we understand of something of his heart that he wasn't broken and turning to God in repentance because he hatched a plan to deal with the deception of Jacob. Well, since Dad dies, I'll kill him. Again, God didn't allow that to happen because Rebecca, once again, I mean, Jacob really was a mama's boy, um, but she saved his life and sent him away. But the fact remains, that gives you an idea of what was going on in Esau's, Esau's heart. He didn't see himself as a sinner before a holy God. He saw himself as somebody who was swindled and wanted to kill the person that swindled him. So let me try and bring all this back together and get to my point about being on the lookout, being on the alert for spiritual frauds. And I want to come back to the words that we open with. But I'm going to read the verse in its entirety one more time. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal for you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. So I think my best understanding even though I recognize from reading and studying their different views on this I think the best understanding of what's being told to us is to understand the immorality and godlessness of Esau as largely being synonymous. What do I mean by that? Esau, from text and from the scriptures, made clear by his life that he didn't value God or the things of God or God's blessings. And even though he was in a family... Surrounded by God, even though his legacy of his family was to know God, even though he would have consistently been around the blessings of God in his family, they weren't a part of his heart. Again, I understand that there's some disagreement amongst experts, people far smarter than me on this, but I think my best understanding of this text is that the writer isn't trying to say that in addition to his godliness, Esau was also just a fornicator, sexually immoral guy. In fact, there's nothing in the scriptures that talk about that. We do know that out of spite, which again tells you his heart, he married a couple of women. That would be a burden to his family just to make his parents suffer. But there's nothing in the text that says he was sexually immoral and constantly a literal fornicator. I think the best understanding is that Esau was a spiritual fornicator. Despite his knowledge of God and his godly grandfather and his godly father, Esau rejected God from the heart. And throughout the Old Testament, even though it normally is dealing with a national context, there are references to faithlessness and idolatry in sexual terms. And I had many references. I realized I was going to be short for time, so I summarized just one. For example, in Ezekiel 6, 9, it says this. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. I think this idea of spiritual adultery, spiritual harlotry, Similar references are the type of thing that are being wrapped up in this idea of immorality. I think what the text is telling us in Hebrews is that we've got to be on the lookout for those people in our midst who are spiritual idolaters. They reject the things of God, even though they might be comfortable walking amongst us. They might be from good families. They might be people who have experienced, through the interactions with others, the blessings of faith, even though they themselves are not of the faith. I think the best summary of what Esau would have been is a spiritual fraud. He's somebody who had all the blessings and privileges and opportunities, and yet a heart that was hardened against God. The writer of Hebrews is warning us. He's saying, see to it, make certain that you be on the lookout for these things in the church. There's countless scriptures that talk about the need for Christians to put away sexual immorality. Don't misunderstand me. Of course that should be put away. Of course if we see a brother or sister in sexual sin, we should lovingly come alongside them and try and turn them away from this. But I think the particular lesson being taught to us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17 is dealing with the nature of spiritual heart. In fact, I think it's an exhortation that mirrors something already said in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Where the writer said, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. I think that is a parallel text that really captures much of the idea that's being conveyed of saying, Don't be immoral or godless like Esau. And so the writer is appealing to their knowledge of the Old Testament to tell them, don't be like that. You know, all of the examples of Hebrews chapter 11 were positive. You know, emulate their faith. They're a great cloud of witnesses. Esau fits in the other camp. Flee from that. Don't be like that. He's not your model. He's not who you pursue. When it's all said and done, this is a Strong exhortation for us to take a greater interest in the lives of one another. I'm convicted when I read a text like this of the challenges that I have as one of ten elders at Lakeside to keep track of the massive flock that God's given us. On Sunday mornings, there's over 500 people here. It's hard to know what's going on in people's lives. Even right now, I, I can't count, but maybe there's 40 or 50 people here. I don't know what's going on in all of your lives. I think this is one of the reasons that these types of instructions are given in scripture because there's an awareness that even though god has provided pastors for the church they can't see everything they can't be everywhere they can't do everything in no way am i justifying the times where i've fallen short and i know i've fallen short many times in my oversight responsibilities But the exhortation for us and the thing that is burdening my heart is that as a class, for example, in living this out, we need to know more about one another. To that end, and I've been convicted by this over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be trying to come up with ways to help us interact at a greater level than we do now. One of the drawbacks from moving from the gym was we lost our tables. Even though we still keep our prayer group, when we were able to sit around the tables, it was a different environment, a different feel, and I miss that. But the reality is, I don't think we can have church with tables back here, so that's probably not going to change. So I want to find other ways for us to interact more, because I'm burdened with creating opportunities for us to do the very things that the Scripture is calling us to do. I don't know that it's uniquely American because I haven't lived anywhere else. But I know for all of us, there can be a temptation just to wall. You know, we come here and then we go back to our little worlds. I don't have the blessing that God gave Tim. I avoid church people, but I avoid everybody else. If I wasn't saved, I'd live on an island. With, me. With Debbie, of course. I'm sorry. I, I've got to... But, I'm not kidding. We've had those discussions. (laughs) Apart from Christ, you know, the trophy mucks would have their own little world. So I know the struggle I have. And some people are, are more outgoing than others. But I want to try and create environments for us to be able to live these things out amongst each other. So I'll follow up with that. But for now, understand when you read these words that these are collective calls for all of us to be invested in the lives of one another. God's given us a great privilege to have so many people around us. But with that privilege comes responsibilities that we need to take seriously. So, I have run over this morning and I apologize. The one thing that I want to be able to do is to pray and yet we're not going to have time to pray this morning. But I trust that the Lord will be able to work in spite of that. I'm going to close our time with prayer next week. I will not be here. I have to speak in the membership class. Um, I forgot that, but now I remember. So somebody else will be speaking, and I could pretend that I so surprised, but I just forgot I was speaking in the membership class, so I have to find somebody to teach next week. But I'm not gone. I just have my responsibilities for the new member class, which I'm told is one of our biggest new member classes ever. And uh, So we praise the Lord for that. So anyway, and then in two weeks, we'll continue with the book of Hebrews. So let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I... Cannot escape the conviction that falls on me when I read and teach because I see the applicability of these verses to my life. But I pray, Lord, also that you will help all of my brothers and sisters look in the mirror and see how it applies to their lives. Lord, you have saved a motley group of people. We're not the cream of society, Lord. We are broken and weak, a ragtag bunch. And yet you chose in your sovereignty to save sinners like us. Lord, we can't get past the amazing nature of our salvation. And yet, Lord, that's only the beginning of our journey to walk by faith. So I pray that as we study your word week after week that you'll convict our hearts that you'll help us not look to how this can be applied to others or how other people can do things better. Lord, help us to confront, first of all, how we can live more like Christ. And I pray, Lord, that the teaching that we get here at Lakeside wouldn't just make us smarter, but it would make us godlier. I thank you, Lord, for Tim and Cindy being with us today. I pray that you continue to bless their ministry. I thank you for the privilege we had to hear from them today. And I pray, Lord, for Pastor Steve as he prepares to open Psalm 46 and preach your word to us. I pray that you give us ears to hear. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.